0: everybody welcome to episode 52 stem cells and Auth- i am dr christopher pisano he is dr yosef ganat And this is the Stem Cell Podcast. What up, Yosef, my man?
1: Wow. So, uh, Stem Cells and Autism. This is a great episode for me because I get to interview my old, my research mom, much like how uh, Sally Temple. That's cool when that happens, right? It's cool when that happens. And I got
0: to tell you, our guest, we should give her a name. Go ahead. Give our guest's name today.
1: Yeah. Dr. Flora Vaccarino at Yale University. She hired me when I was just like a young buck trying to get into science and uh, just like get get into research. And, you know, I think she could tell I didn't know what I was talking about at the time. Like, I remember she was explaining to me PCR uh, the first day I interviewed. And I was like, oh, wow. that was And she, she, I think she could tell I was really excited and interested. And so she hired me anyways. Even. But she
0: gave you a shot. And I think that's really important for everyone out there trying to get into science. It's not what you know. It's how much you're willing to know. I I think that makes a big difference. Like I always say, we can, you can teach anyone anything I think, but it's how much you want to be taught. So, uh, and Flora recognized that and I told Flora when we were interviewing her because we did the, taped it earlier that uh, I, I grew up reading a lot of Flora's work because when I was in grad school from 2002 to 2007 Flora was really publishing a lot on basic neural stem cell biology FGF2 signaling a neural stem cell so I learned a lot from Flora so uh, she's now moved to human system she's going to tell us about her work with IPS cells and uh, autism spectrum disorder which she recently published a, uh, a cell paper on so a good guest, a little bias for both of us I guess Yost but I think our audience Will uh, enjoy the interview. How you doing, man?
1: I'm good. Just a quick story I have to tell. It the only time, well, the few times I had a uh, experience of discovery was in her lab when we made uh, this GFAP ert 2 mouse, and I remember working on the genetics, and you know when the mouse came back months later, and the we did the beta gal staining, and it had a blue brain. It was like, whoa, we made a blue brain out of, you know, a blue mouse brain as a genetic reporter, obviously. But it was one of those moments, a discovery. Yeah, I still had the picture on my wall. I was just like, wow. And look at you
0: now, man. You're hooked ever since uh, you in
1: science. So uh, things have seemed to gone full circle here. Speaking of which, I have an announcement to make that I will be... uh, uh, starting in September, be working at the New York Stem Cell Foundation as a staff scientist. And so after about nine years of working close to or around Lorenz Studer, uh, it's uh, now time for me to uh, move on. And uh, I just want to thank him uh, for everything over the years. And I'm real excited to start my new position at the New York Stem Cell Foundation. Oh, yeah, man.
0: Yeah, Congratulations. So. That's awesome. And that's actually very fitting then that you had your your the, the woman. The scientists that gave you your first shot today, on the day where you announced that you're now taking your next step in your career. That's actually pretty That's uh, uh, pretty cool. Congratulations, man. I'm excited. The NICEF is a great place. In fact, I, I think we plan to interview Scott Nagle from the New York Stem Cell Foundation on the next uh, episode 53 to tell us about his high throughput. But we're on 52, so let's focus here. Uh, we are the Stem Cell Podcast. Um, we are the official podcast of the International Society for Stem Cell Research, the ISSCR. Go to isscr.org and check them out for all they have to offer. Um, we've, the, the Stem Cell Podcast be blowing up, yos. Um, <laughs> I can tell you guys that thanks to all of you listeners, we remain on the iTunes What's Hot in uh, science and medicine, and we're, it's not, we're really within the top 20 uh, on the What's Hot in Science and Medicine. Thank you to everybody. We've now reached uh, over 100,000. Uh, I mean, I think it's like 60,000 uniques, which means that there are 60,000 unique people who have checked it out, uh, the show, and that is an incredible feat Yosef and I are really proud of. And Yos man, uh, it's it's been a pleasure to do this with you, and I think we're going to blow this thing up even further and take it to places that we never thought we could take it.
1: Yeah, and that's minus the first six months uh, right, before exactly. we moved uh, to Blurberry for our stats. So, uh, yeah, it's a milestone for us, and uh, we hope to keep it going. So uh, We will keep it rocking and rolling, and we will now continue the show rolling. We will get into
0: the first segment of the show, which is the Science Roundup, which is brought to you by our friends at Thermo Fisher. Um, you guys know about Thermo. We talk about them on every show. They helped us out, and they help you guys out and all of your research needs. Um, you can go to our website stemcellpodcast.com click on the banner uh, that we have there and it'll take you to see all their products um, we had a bunch of people from Thermo on talking about their differentiation products you can go to lifetechnologies.com slash differentiation and check that out and real quick before i hand it over to yos make sure you go to stemcellpodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter so all of those paper summaries uh, and new
1: episodes can get sent to you as soon as the show airs all right yos what do you got man yeah, so uh for the science roundup, the breadth part, uh we have a proceedings of the Royal Society B. I don't know why they put that letter B at What's the end. I, I, lo- I love that, but it's like how like, you know, hip-hop slang everybody calls each There's other. There's no A. B. Uh, I know, right? Where's A? Uh, so Royal, uh, Royal Society B Project, uh, this project's called the Wild Life of Our Homes Project, where they use citizen science, one of my favorite things, uh, to reveal thousands of microbes found in our homes. They found genetic traces of more than 72,000 taxa of fungi or fungi, uh, more than 125,000 taxa of bacteria, um, thousands of which don't even have names also found that while fungi uh, found inside the home varied widely from region to region, bacteria really don't vary in terms of the places where they're found. And they also found a, a rural ho- home from one part of the country could very likely have a similar population of bacteria to an urban home thousands of miles away. So uh, oh. there's some similarity there. And, and what they also found was that Pets resulted in favoring specific types of bacteria, as well as the ratio of men to women. For instance, uh, more men in the homes resulted in more armpit bacteria. So, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So, uh, I guess that you know, I there's more armpit bacteria when you got guys around. which is funny. But, do you think
0: uh, that correlates to the amount of hair under the arm, or do you think men just sweat more?
1: I, I think it's the latter. So uh, there was a nature cell biology uh, where, uh, program where they uh, reprogrammed cancer cells back to normalcy. So uh, this paper, they restored normal levels of microRNA in cancer cells to reverse their aberrant cell growth. So normally, uh, adhesion proteins like E-cadherin and uh, P120 interact with a key player in the production of microRNAs, but when they are disrupted in cancer cells the microRNAs are misregulated and the cells grow out of control so they looked at a new cell adhesion uh, gene called plec ha1 i mean sorry plec ha7 which uh, maintains e-cadherin and p120 in a tumor suppressive state and loss of the ap- what they call the apical plec ha7 micro processor complex is an early and somewhat universal cancer event. And and, uh, they administered uh, the affected microRNAs to the cancer cells to put a break on the cancer. So they were able to successfully reprogram the cancer cells. So you can find that in Nature Cell Biology. Uh, There's a PLOS-1 paper where they... Basically showed that uh, it's disputing the, there's been this notion out there that gut bacteria, that a certain phylum of gut bacteria, one called firmicutes uh, in the gut bacteria are more common among people who are overweight, while thinner people tend to have more of the phylum bacterioderma. But this paper did like a meta-analysis and they found there was just too much variance in the stool samples to make that claim. So uh, gut bacteria, huh. a little bit uh, more complicated than thought. Um there was a NEGEM study, New England Journal of Medicine, uh, where they studied a gene region of uh, this gene region called FTO and how genetic differences in this region lead to obesity. So they found evidence of a major control stri- switchboard in human adipocyte progenitor cells, so fat progenitor cells, in people uh, with uh, that are at risk uh, that have versions of the FTO gene region uh, where... Activates two distinct genes called IRX, sorry, two distant genes called IRX3 and IRX5, which control thermogenesis, whereby adipocytes dissipate energy as heat instead of storing it as fat. So what they used was CRISPR in human and mouse cells to manipulate the gene pathways and reverse the signatures of obesity. For example, repression of IRX3 in mouse adipocytes lead to dramatic changes in the whole body energy balance, resulting in a reduction of body weight in all major fat stores and complete resistance to a high-fat diet. So uh, you can find that in Nejum or New England Journey. Dude sure. by the way
0: you said thermogenesis real gangster there for a minute you went
1: <laughs> thermo
0: thermogenesis <laughs> yeah. yeah. you know so
1: um, uh there was a present i normally don't uh uh cover presentations. I like peer-reviewed signed uh, papers for this portion. But this one was intriguing. A presentation at the Military Health System Research Symposium uh, showing that a lab-grown brain, so an organoid uh, about the size of a pencil, has an identifiable structure and contains 99% of the genes present in the human fetal brain. So the main thing that was missing in this uh, organoid was the vascular system, which we've talked about uh, in the past, but they let it grow to the 12 week point, and uh, it was meant to match like a five week old human brain and it, what I just thought was important was that it contained ninety nine percent of the uh, genes found at that time point in the human fetal brain, so uh, that you know that's pretty much wow. most of it, yeah, so we'll hopefully see a paper in that soon, but I 'll post a link to it on uh, the website. Uh, There was a neuron paper detailing two parts of the hippocampus that worked together to determine what... Uh, a stimulus, whether a stimulus is completely new or related to something familiar like uh, when you see somebody who looks like that college uh, friend of yours uh, from a while ago. So the dentate gyrus and the and, uh, region of the hippocampus called the CA1 or CA1 compete here. So dente gyrus is where new neurons are born in the hippocampus. And so uh, w- the dentate gyrus assumes that the familiar person that you're seeing is not the person, while CA3 ignores details about the person and just retrieves memories of that person. So CA3 makes the ultimate decision in what they call pattern completion. And so the, it's crazy how they, how they did this study. They use rats with implanted electrodes and chocolate sprinkles on a running track floors with different textures of uh, the floor. Man. Yeah, And that's how they figured this pathway out. So you can find that in Neuron uh, I have a sort of an ominous, uh, thing here. There was a uh, Springer announced Springer, the journal, the publishing yep. journal. Uh, yep. they found, oh, I saw they, this. they <laughs> announced a retraction of 64 articles in 10 journals after an internal investigation discovered, discovered fabricated peer review reports linked to the articles publication. So, uh, not good. And uh, I just heard on the news this morning that they did, uh, uh they tried to reproduce a hundred results, uh, uh psychology or yeah, yeah, psychology paper two thirds were unreproducible, but I don't know, just keeping track of that stuff we'll post stuff to this, but uh as long as you know the police are out there policing these uh these things it gives me confidence that we'll clean some of this stuff up um there was a PLOS-1 paper showing that a high-fat fat diet may impair TRIP-V1 receptors. This is the chili pepper receptor in the stomach that signals fullness. So uh, basically, you could possibly use hot peppers to like trick your brain into feeling full. They found that depletion of TRIP-V1 receptors dampens the response of gastric nerves to stretch, resulting in delayed fullness and increased food consumption uh and just moving on did you see the sprouts libido pill for women was approved by the fda did you I see this i saw that yeah, man that's that's gonna be big news over there so well, uh, what does
0: it do though i don't understand it's, like, it's,
1: it's it's it takes like four to six weeks to work and uh results in one it, extra sex act per month and it's it's kind it, of expensive is it just
0: is it just, just is it just like uh desire increases it, desire there's no actual because viagra we know what happens yeah right? we blood flow to the as we know, what happens, but for a woman.
1: Yeah, this one I think uh works on the serotonin. It was it was a serotonin receptor Okay, so it's more mood, it's more like drive. Yeah, and it takes a while to to work and it has a small effect, but you know, the women that I heard who had uh tried the trial, they speak wonders about it. So uh Really? Yeah. So for some people it really works. Um but it's no Spanish fly or <laughs> whatever is the, the male Spanish fly. Yeah, the male male equivalent of a of a you know, a female equivalent of Viagra, but uh, real quick, I'm just gonna announce that uh, Biogen, uh, it- IDEC, the the company, and Columbia University Medical Center announced that they will map the genes and clinical traits of 1,500 people with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease in an attempt to find a treatment. The effort is being financed in part of that. You remember the ice bucket challenge that you and I did? Yep. So they raised $115 million, and uh, with that money, they're going to use uh, $3.5 million to do this project so uh hopefully that'll help uh spur some discoveries for that disease very very nice yeah i I guess i'll just i have a few more but i'm gonna end on that in the interest of time
0: all right cool so uh thank you man so uh i'll start um because i saw this in the news Uh, you remember, uh, Haruko Obakata, uh, who was the, uh, famous lead author behind the stap cell controversy, controversial paper. So, you know, we thought that was all gone. now apparently she's accusing, she is accusing the NHK, which is basically, I think it's, it's like our NPR. It's like it's Japanese, um, you know, national kind of, uh public broadcasting organization she's accusing them of grossly violating her human rights um so i guess she took issue uh with the way they they handled her scandal uh how they put her up there how they basically made her look to be guilty before anything was came out even though she was um and uh so she's now accusing them of of violating her human rights there's an investigation going on in japan so the stab story uh continues wow, that's
1: some hubris right there okay. yeah i know
0: right you shouldn't uh please don't tell me that i'm doing something wrong and make me seem like i'm doing something wrong because i did something wrong so <laughs> there were um this is so did you know that stem cells went to space man or they're going to space what so stem cell they the st- i guess stem cells are going to go to space and they had a they had a kind of prototype. They had a test flight. So it was stem cells survive a wild ride on a prototype space capsule. So it says despite a rough landing, the stem cells riding in a prototype capsule survived a long fall back to Earth during a drop test, which is part of this initiative to uh, research cells in space. Wow. So it's called
1: the... Though, yeah, it's cool, right? That it's just called, sounds crazy. Stem cells in space. Stem cells <laughs> in space,
0: man. The, it's called the Red 4U Capsules, created by the Terminal Velocity Aerospace, to return sci- science experiments to Earth and carried a cargo of adult stem cells um, that were provided by the Mayo Clinic. Um, and despite a parachutes deployment issue, um, you know, they they were thriving when they came back down. Um, the, fair, the They were investigating the failure. But basically, the Mayo is going to fly to the, the, the Mayo experiment. They're going to fly to the International Space Station where they're looking at how the stem cells grow in space. Uh, cool. And they said there's evidence from prior testing that they will grow up to 10 times faster in space and have higher purity and other advantages as well. So if you have a pretty... If you're doing a differentiation, Yos, and the population is not very pure, we can just go to space and maybe we'll get uh, a better yield. So... Um, They're doing all
1: sorts of crazy stuff. Like I just saw that they're putting a a small amount of whiskey into the space station to see how it'll age. So they're putting all sorts of stuff in space. You know what? I would love
0: to interview someone who's been on the space station, by the way. I would just love to know what goes on up there. Anyway, there was a really important paper that was published in Cell Stem Cell. And um, uh, it's been widely been talking about. And um, some skeptics are doubtful and some are thinking it's a, a really... A great piece. Regardless, it's an important study. I think it's very cool. It's out of the lab of, uh, Yang, Yang, Yang Yu, or Yang Zhu. And, uh, it's called Human. It's from, in, in, in cell stem cell. Humanized mice reveal different, differential immunogenicity of cells derived from autologous induced pluripotent stem cells. So, the whole, one of the biggest, biggest excitements about IPS technology is that you can create these stem cells from our own body. And so, when we make the cell type we're interested in, we could put it back into our own body and our bodies will not reject, mm-hmm. right? This is the big thing. It's called autologous transplantation. Yost can tell you that. And then there's the um, allogeneic, which means, like, say, if Yosef's stem cells turned into neurons and I put those neurons into me, they're not mine. So there's a bigger uh, risk of rejection, you know, rejection. So this is a really cool strategy. They use humanized mice. So for everyone out there, for what's a humanized mouse? It sounds really bizarre and it's not what you're thinking. They take, they basically obliterate uh, not obliterates the. I mean, that's a, such a strong word, but they destroy immunocompromised a mouse and their immune system, and then they reconstitute it with CD thirty four positive cells from a from human fetal thymus. So it's human mm-hmm. immu- like immune precursors, and they reconstitute the whole animal. So now the mouse has a human like immune system. Mm-hmm. Okay, from the same cells that they reconstituted the mouse with. They, do, they made IPS cells, mm-hmm. okay? So now they have IPS cells that are genetically matched to the immune system in the mouse, and they differentiated them into a few different cell types. And in this example, they use RPE, which we know uh, for the eye, and then uh, smooth muscle cells. And what they found was that the RPE really exhibited no uh, immune rejection or no immune response. But the smooth muscle cells appeared to be highly immunogenic and mm-hmm. were really not very tolerated. And so what they saw was that it wasn't a pan thing, but it was very specific to the cell type that you were putting in. And they found that it's due to this abnormal expression of immunogenic antigens in these uh, iPS-derived smooth muscle, cell- muscle cells, but not in the RPE. But so wait, si-
1: Chris, I thought the RPE was, or at least when you place them in the eye, it's immunoprivileged uh, areas. Uh, in is- the eye,
0: yeah. Here they didn't put them in the eye. They were just putting them in the body to see if they would reject. You know, okay. I don't know where they put them. But um, they're saying that the findings support the feasibility of developing h human IPSC derived RPE for treating MAC degen, mm-hmm. while the other cell types. Might, we might have to be cautious about this and deal with it on a case-by-case basis. So this is something for the dopaminergic field. They're putting human dopaminergic, but that's not autologous, right, Yos know, so right. The plan is allogeneic. So I guess what the, the caution to this paper is just because it comes from your own body doesn't mean when they put it back, they're always going to take and not reject. So, but it also is a checkmark for RPE. If you're working with RPE, they seem to be tolerated well yeah um and then just a quick i segue to that you know takahashi in japan Masahiro takahashi had this ips rpe uh clinical trial going on i didn't know Yos, that was stopped it was delayed it was, yeah it's delayed there was like a genomic issue one of their ips had an oncogene that was mutated and they had yeah. to like fix that i didn't realize that bad so news. Oh, bad news bad later. news i hope that gets back on track i saw this yos you're gonna like it uh This is a viral infection in colon cancer stem cells mimicked, druggable target identified. So researchers, this was in Cell, This this paper is so hardcore biology, like to read it is really, really difficult. So I'll give you like a lay sum. Basically, researchers are targeting colorectal cancer cells, which is really the root cause of the disease, and they're resistant to a lot of treatments. They discovered a mechanism to mimic a virus and potentially trigger an immune response to fight the cancer like an infection. Mm. So we're talking about this, right? So it's mimicking a virus. The potential is to trick the immune system into seeing the cancer cells as an infection that needs to be destroyed. Mm. They call it viral mimicry. So our work demonstrates that viral mimicry is a viable anti-tumor strategy. So they're basically trying to create a model by which your body, which is pretty damn good at fighting infection yeah. and fighting things, sees a cancer as bad and just starts attacking it on its own, which I think is beautiful and I think is the future of medicine. Um, and it's a really great, great uh, – we'll put it up. I'll put the lay sum up because, the again, uh, for the scientists out there that want to read it, it's in cell. But for all that's on, in lay, it's going to be really difficult. I'll, I will put it up. But it's a really beautiful paper. Uh, check that out. This is in uh, cell stem cell. And I did this because the senior author is Yoshishiki Sasai, the late Yoshishiki Sasai, who unfortunately uh, um, uh, committed suicide, uh, I think it was last year, right, Yos? Amongst this whole stab crap. Rose signaling-directed YAP-TAS activity underlies the long-term survival and expansion of human embryonic stem cells. Uh, Yoshishiki Sasai was instrumental in in coming up with techniques to grow uh, single-cell human embryonic stem cells back in the day. And uh, he just this work just continues on mechanisms for pluripotent
1: stem cell survival. So he's posthumously po- yeah. uh, uh, P- publishing. Publishing yeah. <laughs> amazing. Uh, I know PP. Yeah, uh, this
0: is out of Lee Rubin's lab in Cell Stem Cell. Genome-wide RNA seq of human motor neurons implicates selective ER stress activation in SMA, spinal mus- muscular atrophy. Fixed fixed uh, an antibody label motor neurons they basically uh took motor neurons from patients and they did rna seq, and they found that there was this elevated er stress in sma check that out cellstemcell.com uh let me see here i've got a limited time so this is cool Again, this is in cell reports, functional gene correction for cystic fibrosis in lung epithelial cells generated from iPSCs. So, this is, cystic fibrosis is one of the most kind of famous genes that has this one mutation and it goes wrong in the CFTR gene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, they uh, they created IPS cells from these patients that are homozygous for this mutation. They use CRISPR to correct and then they... Um, they do the re- they do the differentiations to lung epithelium and and demonstrate a functional correction of the CFTR. So it's just uh more in vitro modeling and and proof of principle that you can do it. Um and I think for the sake of time, Yosef, we'll just leave off there. Yeah, yeah,
1: just real quick, uh my friend just sent me an article on this gene drive uh that you mentioned in the last oh, episode. Yeah. Uh people are really getting on like how do you regulate this if one fruit fly escapes, it's out. it could like Change every fruit fly on the planet. That, yeah, you know, and for
0: good or for bad. I mean, think yeah. about like honeybees. Like, think about how like the honeybees, how sensitive they are. Like, what yeah. if something happened? We mutated all honeybees, they all die or something like that. I mean, you could, this is catastrophic technology. Yeah. That's yeah. why people are really, really, uh, you know, about this. And for everyone out there, Gene Drive, we talked about it. Please read up on it. It's a yeah. very interesting I- and. and- and
1: hot topic. I'll post to this uh, article that he sent me in Science. It's called "Safeguarding Gene Drive Experiments in the Laboratory." So I haven't read it yet, but uh, people are people are on this. is a big issue. Uh, August yeah, twenty eighth issue. So
0: yeah, and and our friend Paul Knopfler um, uh, did a nice does nice piece on gene drive. So you can go to ipsl.com and check out the Knopf's blog. That's what I say, the Knopf <laughs> yeah, blog. Nops blog. Uh, all right, so we should move to the interview segment of the show, right, Yos? Yes, sir. Should get Flora on so the interview segment of the Stem Cell Podcast is uh, now sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. I think everybody uh, at least in science, at least in Stem Cell uh, Technology and Stem Cell World knows Stem Cell Technologies and um, in particular their medias, the Teaser One and Teaser E8 Maintenance Media, know they're widely used commercial media and um, so the the folks at Stem Cell Technologies want to let everybody know that uh, if you're using those, there are ways to use those medias and not have to feed your cells on the weekend um, and and to do that, there are some kind of pointers and tips, kind of like a mini protocol you can follow. So you can go check that out at com slash weekend free and learn how you can uh, adapt your culture system to not have to feed uh, on the weekends. Again, stemcell, com slash weekend
1: free. Yeah, I saw that. It's uh, five days instead of seven days of uh, feeding. So... Uh, reclaim those weekends. And uh, that, that should be good. Uh, free up some, some time.
0: <laughs> it's always good to free up time. So yeah, check it out. Yeah. Stemcell.com slash weekend free. Okay. So uh, exciting for myself, and I know for Yosef to have our guest, episode 52, uh, we have Dr. Flora Vaccarino, and she is a Harris professor in the Child Study Center, professor of neurobiology at the Yale University School of Medicine. So real quick before I introduce uh, Flora, I'll just uh, give you just a quick... Snippet background. I don't want to give too much because I want her to tell us about what she does. So uh, Flora got her MD and a special specialization in neurology from Padua University School of Medicine in Italy. Um, she came to the states, did a postdoc, and then she did a resident and brought her, we brought her to Yale, did a residency in psychiatry, uh, and was a chief resident of psychiatry and clinical neuroscience research unit in the uh, in New Haven down there at the. Uh, Yale, And I, I, what I would like to do when I bring Flora on, I should stop right there and say, Flora's has transitioned into the lab and has quite a career. I grew up, I was just telling Flora, I really grew up in my science training. Yosef as well, I'm sure reading a lot of her work. Um, there was, a, I remember there was a review from 2003. It sticks in my mind. Um, and I remember reading it, uh, about the overview of brain development. I remember reading that and reading it because I was trying to get an overview of brain development and Flora had it there. So I was reading it, uh, so let me bring her on the show, Flora. Welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks for coming on.
2: Thank you very much. That's really exciting.
0: So, okay. So Flora studies neural stem cells and their applications in disease. And so well, I was going to introduce, but I'm going to let you, Flora, just quickly while we but to give everyone a bit of context. Just tell a little bit about your lab and the overview and what the lab is doing.
2: So um my lab traditionally has been doing developmental brain research mostly in animal models. Uh we started looking at human brain about ten years ago, and now we're uh doing about you know, I would say one third uh work instead in mice, and the two thirds is mostly human based work, both post mortem and human stem cell related work. So um do you want more or? Uh... The,
0: well, so so I guess for everyone, I, I mean, out there and for for the audience, neural stem cells are. I like to describe them as kind of the building block. block excuse me, blocks of the brain. Um, you know, and during development, there exists a cell at some point that will give rise to the whole brain, and um, you can imagine the incredible journey that goes on. And so, I know over the years, uh, Flora, your lab has trying to understand. Right, the mechanisms of how those cells divide, how they expand, and then turn into the different cell types, and how that can go wrong in diseases. Is, is that correct? Correct. So um, tell I should I should say we Osip and I have already talked about it, but we're going to bring it up. Um, Flora has uh, recently just published a, a really beautiful paper. Paper in Cell, Cell being my favorite journal because I actually feel like I'm reading a paper. Um, and um, so, and this was Foxg1 dependent dysregulation of uh, gamma glutamate neuron differentiation in ASD or autism spectrum disorders. So why don't we? You know, this is the latest paper from the lab. Tell us the background of that study and and you know, what you found going through there.
2: So let me first tell you a story, which no. is why I got interested in uh, induced pluripotent stem cells in human stem cell research, because traditionally my lab has been doing a lot of work in mouse stem cells. In fact, with Josef, when Yosef was around in my lab, that's what we were doing, if you remember <laughs> so yes. um yes. So we did a lot of work using mouse models and cellular models. You know, we were looking at FGF and other genes in both prenatal and postnatal development and stem cell, uh, uh, um, you know, patterning and proliferation and things like that. Uh, however, in about 2008, 2009, um, Various things happened and made me realize how important it was to incorporate humans in our work. And I'm just I'm just telling you a couple of things that became all of a sudden very crucial for this transition. One is the realization with the 1,000 genomes uh, related work and the sequencing, you know, the sequencing of more and more human genomes that mice differ for one-fifth of their genomes from humans. So there is a, a, a tremendous, one-fifth of the genome is a huge, it's a huge difference. Uh, in addition, and this is just the genome sequence, in terms of transcriptomes, which is the translated portion of the genome, mice, uh, humans express a lot more variants, a lot more non-coding RNA, a lot more gene variants, especially during brain development and therefore very related to our work. So, uh, you know, so I realized that perhaps it was good to try to uh, understand stem cells and their development not just in mice but also in humans and then there was another uh, thing that uh, emerged from uh, especially neuropsychiatric disorders uh, that A lot of these disorders don't just depend on a single gene, but they probably depend on a lot of gene variants. We call gene variants, which are not necessarily pathological in in themselves, in isolation. But maybe certain combinations could be, And, and, and therefore, psychiatric disorder may not just be like you know the cause the relation the you know the um the result of a mutation of a single gene but you know genetic background and the variation of the genetic background could have a large impact on that and so when human pluripotent stem cells uh, were discovered i realized well this is perhaps a way to not only study human uh stem cells uh and their development in a dynamic way but also to begin to understand how human genetic variation might have an impact on development that was the that was the uh, idea that sort of prompted this whole journey into uh human stem And so that uh, started in 2009 and then we started, you know, getting patients uh, by and being at the Child Study Center obviously was very important because I am in direct contact with clinicians. We invited families. We decided to go with families rather than with individual patients for a variety of regions and like reasons I can explain. But we began a collection of tissue and began, we learned how to make polypotent stem cells. And, you know, so that's the beginning of basically this paper. You know, it took several years to get this all uh, finished. Um, so
1: you, sorry, go ahead, Jos. No, no, uh, just, you know, in that transition to human stem cells, because I remember when I first came into the lab, I guess this... 15 years ago. Wow, it's been a while. So um, when I first came to Flora's lab, she was working on a FGF2, and I remember thinking, why are we working on this fibroblast gene? And then ah. she shows me this, this image of a, of a, I think it was a mouse or rat brain where the, uh, d- where she administered FGF2, and the brain was like twice as big. And I was like, oh, I guess, you know, just a cool name doesn't matter. <laughs> so, uh, But as, as most stem cell scientists know, you need FGF2 for human uh, stem cells to grow, but she had shown this in vivo. But uh, transitioning from that, you know, uh, all the work we did together uh, with, you know, mouse stem cells in the subventricular zone and the dentate gyrus, uh, when you moved on to human stem cells, uh, you had also a recent Nature paper, fairly recent Nature paper, uh, where you described uh, some variants with the IPS cells, the somatic copy number, yeah. Can you just talk about that before we move into the cell paper? Um,
2: just quickly. That was a side track and became a national paper. Isn't that cool?
1: Yeah. 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 good sidetracks. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 That, 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 <laughs> So when we, when we, in 2009, began working on iPSCs, we were very concerned that what I was telling you before, we wanted to use them to understand how the so the impact of human genomic variation on transcriptomes and on stem cell development. Well, sure, a few papers started to emerge saying, well, guess what? iPSCs are not really immune from mutations they do change in vitro. They accumulate hundreds of mutations. So then, well, uh, if that's true, uh, we better look at that because then we are not going to be able to look at true gen- human genetic variation if this says continuously change in vitro and they're unstable. So then we decided, well, before we start really Big time relying on this model. Let's look at that. So we did the first uh, large, relatively large scale genome sequencing effort, and this is whole genome sequence, not just transcript, not just uh, exomes, right? So it's, we do we did whole genome sequence analysis of iPSCs in comparison with the fibroblasts because we reasoned that if indeed we should have seen no no difference, right? If if the iPSCs have reflected totally the genome of the fibroblast from which they derived. However, we did see differences. And we became very concerned because, uh, for example, looking at copy number variations, which are chunk of big chunks of genomes can get duplicated or deleted, we saw on average from two to five b- big copy number variants per IPS line. So uh, so then we did further work again we were very concerned but we ended up discovering that these copy number variations and now we're also looking at single nucleotide variations are actually not in great part not generated in vitro but pre-existing in the fibroblast of origin so we realized that the reason why we didn't people don't see this variant is because they're so low frequency that when you sequence the whole fibroblast fibroblast population, being that a mosaic of different uh, mutated cells, you may not see what's present in maybe one or two percent of the fibroblast. However, when you generate iPS, since they're all derived from one cell, you do see variations that are reflective of the genome of single cells. So, basically, what that tells us is that uh, fibroblast and and also brains and probably many tissues are not a single genome. They do accumulate genomic variation, and we need to be aware of that. It's an interesting biological phenomenon, and we we need to be aware when we do IPS work in particular, because you know that reflects the genome of one cell. That you know it's it's not necessarily reflective of the whole cell population. So that that was that was the nature of it. So so when when we make
0: when we make IPS cells from fibroblasts, from somatic cells, and we typically make a bunch of different lines from the same patient, right? So did you see that it would vary with lines? So if you took the fibroblast and you had three clones made, three different lines, would all three lines have a different sort of mosaicism or would they all be very similar?
2: So I would imagine
0: because it's stochastic how the, how the IPSers are, our IPS cells are made.
2: Right. So so in the ninety five percent of the cases they were all different, but okay. some of them shared some mutations because these mutations were frequent enough so stochastically, right. we could see that in two separate lines. Okay. And so these were the mutations that were present at more than 20% frequency in the ov- overall fibroblast population. So you can also calculate if a mutation is less than 5%, you know, the chance of being shared by randomly two fibroblasts is, is very minimal, right? But also depends on the how the biopsy is taken, you know, and it could be that two cells by chance share the same lineage, and so they may also share mutations. Okay. So the bottom line is that these, these mutations are shared uh, or they could be present only in that one cell that you're analyzing. But if you, on average, make your conclusion dependent on more than one IPS line, then I think, you know, you have a good chance of overcoming this phenomenon that could potentially alter your results. So my suggestion then is uh, to be aware of this and to do enough IPS lines nice in order to, you know, potentially um, avoid this uh, potential artifact that you might have. Although, as I said, in itself is a very interesting biological phenomenon, uh, which I don't think we have the time to discuss today.
0: (laughs) so the the, the paper, i mean the uh, in relation to autism and autism spectrum disorders I'm just curious has that been a focus of the lab and clinically I know as a as you know as a, a developmental neurobiologist and studying just brain development it has implications for many different neurological diseases in particular autism because it's a childhood disease and thought to now really uh, start to things start to go wrong with the hypothesis being fairly early in brain development so I'm just wondering in the lab is that always a focus in the lab or is it just a natural focus given in the, the terms of what you study?
2: Well, it's kind of a bit of both because uh, one thing that Yosef mentioned was my work on FGF, right? <laughs> Remember, right. Joseph, we were injecting FGF, and we still do, by the way, <laughs> and uh, we are seeing interesting things earlier when we inject FGF at earlier stages, but what's happening with FGF is an increase in brain size and perhaps also a more convoluted brain in certain areas, So when we learned that um, one particular risk factor for autism is an increase in brain size and that uh, some of the kids that uh, are doing worse in terms of language scores, for example, and, and social development have this strange phenomenon where there is an acceleration of brain growth in the very first few months of life, that sort of sparked our interest, particularly in relation to the work on FGF. So I thought, well, this could be an interesting, could be not just a marker for increased severity, but perhaps could be uh, underlying a particular interesting biological subtype of autism and may give us insights into pathophysiology. And so... Uh, you know, another important thing is that we wanted to study idiopathic autism. We, you know, we wanted to, you know, look at the 80% or so cases that for which there was no defined right, right. genetic mutation. And this uh, brain um, overgrowth uh, cuts across that. You find it in the so-called idiopathic cases. You find in some of the ones that are not idiopathic. So it seemed to us a very interesting biological phenotype that, was kind of rooted in our in our mouse studies, and we were interested in that. We knew a bit about the biology of brain growth or overgrowth, and so you know we decided, hey, why don't we study this in patients? So our patient collection, in fact, starts by uh, selecting for these type of patients with brain overgrowth. Mm. So that was that was something that uh, perhaps you know uh, also was important because the reason why we were able to get results with only four families perhaps is also rooted in the fact that these particular families share this important biological phenotype. So moving
1: moving into the weeds of this paper, so uh, you got into organoids, I see. So uh, organoids are this new method of Growing tissue in the lab using stem cells. And so, uh, in this paper, you used organoids, uh, derived from IPS cells from, uh, patients with autism and, uh, I guess family members as controls is, yes. is, yes. Yeah. So, um, and what you found was a difference in the amount of GABA neurons and that was, uh, dependent on FOX. Uh, G one or BF one expression, basal was it, uh basal forebrain, brain, Chris? BF one uh,
0: brain it's brain factor one. Brain Is that right, factor.
1: Flora? Yes. Brain factor yeah. one. So it's got two names, Fox G one and BF one. And uh right. Chris has a great antibody for that by the way. <laughs> um, so uh so uh why don't you bring us uh through like the results uh what you found by looking at these organoids.
2: So First of all, the organoid was, um, I mean, we we don't necessarily need to go into that. I think it was crucial because in our hands were very reproducible and, you know, we were able to really do RNA sequencing, um, you know, without any further selection of the organoid. So we would take four organoids and be able to see Reproducible results, you know. Mm. Uh, so, so that I think is a very robust way of growing and differentiating IPS. And the other nice thing that we saw was they reflected human telencephalic development at about mid fetal or early, early to mid fetal stages of, of cerebral cortical development. So, so we had uh, all six layers of cortical neurons and GABA interneurons in there. GABA interneurons in these organoids are typically below 5% in controls, which is sort of, you know, what you normally might see in, in cerebral cortex. So. However, uh, when we saw the transcriptome of these organoids, we uh, we we um, analyzed them with uh, gene network analysis, and one of the gene network that we identified uh, revealed an overexpression, not an underexpression, but an overexpression of telencephalic genes, in particular those reflective of GABAergic neurons. So we said, "Hmm, this is interesting. There is an overexpression of." Genes expressed in the telencephalon, not an expression of as people thought before, right? right. You think right. decreased GABA cells in schizophrenia, maybe in depression, so why right. not? Yeah. So, so then we looked at the biology of the cells, and indeed we confirmed with immunocytochemistry that uh, there was an increase in, in early GABA neurons as uh, shown by, for example, the transcription factor DLX and uh, the GABA synthetic enzyme and other markers. So so that was very surprising. And we thought quite a bit of, well, is it this true? You know, there was an increase in GABA synapses. We saw some evidence at the electrophysiological level that that also uh, caused some physiological disturbances in these early cells, even though it's kind of too early to say what the late uh, after effect of this might be. But nevertheless, we were intrigued by that. So... So when we saw this phenomenon and, and this was fairly robust as I was saying we uh, wanted to understand why so we looked in that very same gene module and this is the beauty of gene network is that you can in an unbiased way go back and see so a module is a set of genes that are that share uh they are co-expressed so they are statistically going up and down together across all samples so these were genes that shared expression patterns across samples so perhaps they were biologically related to each other right so for example you could see you know transcriptional networks being co-expressed so within the same network where we saw the telencephalic genes like the dlx the gsx2 the dlx antisense the whatever there were a number of gaba related genes we saw foxg1 and foxg1 was a so-called hub genes, which means one of the genes that share most correlations amongst all other genes in that network. So, um, so that attracted our attention because not only all the work has been done, including by you, Chris, and others, you know, Sally and a lot of other people, you know, um, Gord Fischel, just to mention one that is a very important gene for telencephalic development, uh, since the day it was discovered originally but loss of function of fox1 causes microcephaly now we had an overexpression of fox1 right. which was as much as 10 fold 10 to 13 fold in the patient so that that you know that was sort of logical right that you know with the mouse studies you know fit very well with the mouse studies plus there are also data suggesting that fox1 may be particularly important for GABAergic neurons because has uh, a gradient of expression which is higher in the basal transephalum where GABA neurons originate, and also loss-of-function mouse uh, models for FOXG1 have decreased GABAergic neuron development, and we had an increase. So, you know, there were a few hints that perhaps this could be important, and I managed to convince Jessica Mariani, the first author of this paper, to do a loss-of-function, you know, an SHRNA experiment blocking FOXG1. And indeed, uh, that was able to revert uh, the overexpression of gaba cells, suggesting that perhaps this gene may be not the only one, but it's certainly a crucial link in the chain of events that leads to that GABA overexpression phenotype. And, you know, this is somewhat, you know, obviously... um, the, the, the reason, you know, whether that's pathological or not, and to what extent, you know, we can discuss, but there are a number of other disorders that have uh, a abnormal increase in allergic neurons. And so, you know, obviously, I believe that, you know, an imbalance in this ratio, either in one way or in another, could probably have deleterious consequences on further development.
1: So so one so- of the questions, I guess, um, I would say, like, just looking at it from afar, uh, some of these patients, uh, the autistic patients have, uh, seizures and, uh, you know, GABA neurons, the way conceptually some people think of it is just like they are the brakes. So you have an increase in the brakes. And normally when you have seizures, you have a decrease in the brakes and you get these, I mean, it's very simplistic, but is the idea that, uh, with the increase in the brakes, maybe you're, uh, Inhibiting an inhibitory pathway and therefore getting excitation, or uh, did these patients actually have uh, uh, seizures that you, where you you're, saw this?
2: You're raising an important issue. I mean, um, first of all, the phenomenon of seizures in developmental disorder is still poorly understood. Just to tell you one thing, there are patients with duplication of FOC1, and one of the most important, so overexpression in that mm. case too. Mm. They have seizures as that's the number one I thing see. that they have. Yeah. So, um, so, so, so you know, autism has seizures. Some of the patients have seizures. In our case, we didn't have seizures in our patient, but it is, you know, it is about ten to twenty percent. So it's a kind of give and take, you know. Uh, they could have had seizures, perhaps the origin of these seizures is not clear, mm. and uh, you know, so it could very well be that um, you have these imbalances. You know, alter the network in such a way that could also predispose to seizures. So, this is not clear why seizures arise. So, some of the least safely has seizures, for example. Do we know why they have seizures? Right. No, don't. So, uh, I think this is a, a very important question that, you know, will need to be explored with future studies where you may want to actually induce, in normal cells, for example, uh, imbalances in FOX-G1 and see whether, you know, what the consequence of that leads to in terms of GABAergic neuron development in a more extended ways than just the very first few stages that we analyzed. Uh, we, uh, we couldn't really look at the development of the network in a very full fashion because these are very early organoids. So we'll need to develop better models of, of uh, looking at this issue.
0: So I just uh, I have a question I'm going to put on my... Uh, sorry to the audience who's, uh, I have to go really on my hardcore developmental uh, hat. You know, it, for a while, you know, when I, grew, when I grew up learning and reading about the brain, the GABAergic interneurons that populate the cortex are thought to have been basally or eventually derived and then they migrate up. And then when we do IPS for the telencephalon, uh, in particular if you 're going to do this in the, in the cortex, you, you dorsalize if you 're really trying to it typically defaults dorsal and you end up sometimes unfortunately with a kind of a top part of the brain for the audience dorsal and and so i 'm just wondering, flora, when you direct your differentiation, do you specify the top dorsal bottom? Because I mean, those inner neurons that you have, and I know like Pashko Rakesh for years, for a long time, we've been still talking about the origin of these, these GABAergic neurons in the human neocortex. And I would love to hear your take on that. <laughs> um, are, do, do do you believe, um, I mean, I don't know how you're doing the protocol, so it could be that you're encompassing both. But if you are in fact dorsalizing, do, is it your belief that you're getting these inner neurons from uh, the, top, the top cortex, dorsal cortex?
2: Well, that's a great question, Chris. Um, I'm I'm glad you asked that question because it's actually in the supplementary figure of our paper. What you can see there is that the cells, the areas that have TBR1, that is the dorsal area, are not the one that have the GAT, the GAT67 and the DLX. So these two areas are actually segregated in the organoids. So what I believe is that we don't dorsalize, actually. We don't do anything. We just let the cells... Let them go. Let them go spontaneously. And so we end up having both dorsal and basal. And that's why we can see this. That's why I believe this is a better model than the, you know, maybe the uh, two-dimensional models that are mostly dorsalized. I agree. But in this case maybe because the cells are three-dimensional, there is a specification of a mini, I believe, a mini basal terencephalone in there, which is rich in the in biologic cells and it's physically segregated from the TBR1 radial glia type cells. Mm. And so then the cells, of course, intermix with each other, right, as, as they should. But at the beginning, in the earlier stages, we do see them separately developing. So, uh, so I actually believe... I mean, although I can comment on on, on on the idea that perhaps some gabergic cells sure. may originate. I mean, that's possible. But I see in these organoids an area that is basal telencephalon like according to the markers that we see. And it's interesting that this is reproducible enough that, you know, our transcriptome studies and immunocytochemical studies confirm that in pretty much every organoid we we grow. So it's not like serendipitous or randomly in one and not in another. So it's a fairly reproducible phenomenon.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the – the organoids have a lot of – I mean, when you think about the brain, especially when you're developing in the fetus in utero, a lot of the signals – the, the, the signals are present, but the cells exist in a three-dimension that they sometimes can escape those dorsalizing signals and thus they'll ventralize. It's not so much that there's ventral signal. When you're in a 2D system, there's no escape. So if there's a dorsal signal, everything will go go dorsal. So I would imagine, Flora, to your point, in this kind of si- uh, system where you have a 3D orientation, you're going to have cells that we're, are going to vent and assume that, and you can see them migrate. So um, it, it might offer a nice, uh, a more representative model down the road because you can actually uh, watch how cells behave and they normally would in a three-dimensional-like structure. So that that, that is a, a good point, something to think about going forward. Yeah,
2: yeah I, I agree. I agree with you. And also, we, not, we need to think about our old rat or mouse developmental studies. I mean, you, you know, right, that once there is that initial stage where these cells initially segregate and identify them, um, themselves as basal-like, they're going to inhibit dorsal development in themselves. Sure. Right? So, so that process is only going to be self-amplifying. And, and, and you know, there is like a mini boundary probably that's formed, and, you know, as it does in normal development in the mouse. So, so I think, you know, I think the 3D perhaps is more permissive, You know, in terms of having these cells, you know, able to segregate and talk to each other and identify themselves as different than the rest of the culture. Which, by the way, you know, it's still, you know, a minority of them. But it's so interesting that in autism patients ends up being a lot more abundant. Mm -hmm. So that was the interesting finding.
1: So, uh, so, um, looking at the time check right now. Uh, we'd like to ask our guests, uh, where, uh, what we call the where's the beef question, uh, where they think, uh, some sort of, uh, cures or therapies from stem cells may come about. Uh, do you think, do you see anything around the horizon that, uh, looks, looks promising to you?
2: Well, what seems to be closer, uh, in my view is perhaps a diagnostic test. A test that would help us enable to identify subtypes of autism. What we call autism is perhaps a number of different disorders that are pathophysiologically quite different. Although they may share a phenotype, right? I I don't deny that. We don't know yet to Mm -hmm. what extent Mm -hmm. all these idiopathic cases are the same or not. All we can say now is that they don't have any identifiable gene cause. Maybe it's a group of genes, but maybe... There, there are phenomena you know biological neurobiological developmental phenomena that can help us segregate them in subtypes and because we know from the early therapeutic studies that are being done as we speak that these drugs, uh, including gabergic drugs don't don't uh, seem to be um, working in all patients so I'm wondering whether a better way to segregate patients based on Neurobiological developmental criteria might actually help doing designing better drug studies and then, therefore, you know, having an assurance that you know something is going to work or not. So that's what I see coming closer.
1: That's that's great. I mean, we we normally get RPE, so this was a nice change of pace.
0: I just want to quickly add something, ask something really quick. Flora, do you envision a day where uh, a baby is born and a biopsy or some sort of something is taken and the IPS cells are made right then and there, differentiated and looked... You know, we're going to get to a day where... You know, because like in autism, that the disease presents later. So you have some time where you can might be able to identify, you know, this child is showing uh, X, Y, and Z, and more than likely X percent might have fall on the spectrum. So we should get ready to intervene early because we know that the earlier you can intervene here with autistic children, the better off they will be. Do you envision a day where they do something like that, incorporate a diagnostic technique a test that might include IPS technology.
2: Yeah, I do. I do absolutely. I think I think there is plenty of evidence that early intervention is very beneficial in these kids, and we can't do a sure diagnosis before age three, so or more. So too right. to far. So I mean you know and these and these kids also change phenotypically sometimes you're not sure about early diagnosis right so i think having something biologically rooted is definitely going to be a plus if we can manage to do so with a certain certain degree sure, of accuracy sure. right so yep. that's the other thing but c- certainly so yeah i think early uh, early intervention and categorization of of subtypes uh, are probably two things that um will help the field and maybe we can contribute. We, I mean, all researchers working in IPS can contribute to that. Absolutely.
1: Okay. And finally, just to wrap up the episode, for a little bit of comic relief, uh, we asked to uh, tell perhaps a funny story of uh, either during your training or when I was in the lab or something recent, something funny that's happened over the years.
2: Well, I mean... There are so many funny things. I mean, one that jumps to mind is when we up, happened to add gel to a dish of growing organoids, and we saw these things ballooning up, you know, <laughs> jumping, almost jumping up from the dish, and we were afraid. I mean, my God, where are we going to go next? So that's one thing. But there is another jumping phenomenon that um, that you might remember, If You remember when we were treating mice with environmental enrichment? And these guys, uh, this is back in the, you know, I believe it was 2009 or no, earlier, 7, 6 or 7. Anyhow, these guys became so smart and so excited of, you know, being raised in these enriched conditions with toys and all kinds of perks that they decided, they decided they don't want to stay in the cage anymore. Right?
0: So they jumped out?
2: What they, did, no, what they did was amazing. As soon as, you know, as you normally open the cage, do whatever, genotyping, they jump up. They jumped up in the lab and they started around in the <laughs> lab. And so we had all these enriched mice that basically, you know, they were all around. So we had to think of serious ways to sort of try to, you know, avoid that phenomenon because, you know, but... You See know.
0: that, everybody? Don't make your mice too smart. Just don't <laughs> let them just be in a cage. That's, that's really funny. Yos, watch out for those jumping mice, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Flora taught me pretty much all that I know about uh, handling mice. So, And I probably wouldn't be where I am today if uh, she never hired me as a technician in her lab all those years ago. So thank you, and it's been a real pleasure having you on to discuss your uh, most recent work.
2: Thank you, guys, and it was a pleasure for me as well. Um, so uh, I guess that's it, right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah thank you so much,
0: Flora. Thank nice you. speaking with you. Take care. Enjoy. Good luck with everything else.
2: Thank you. Bye
0: bye. Bye bye.
1: All right. So there it is. Uh, that was a great interview. That was that was like going home for me.
0: <laughs> I'm going home. That yeah. was it, and that was yeah. great. And for me, it's a treat for me because I, I in the lab we study autism. We use pluripotent stem cells, uh, and similar. So it's nice to hear, uh, people doing similar stuff and to hear their approach. The organoid approach, Yos, know, is a, is a very cool approach. I, I would like to actually, I'm going to email Flora and see if I can talk to her a little more and find out about her, how she does the organoids because she says she has them very reproducible. And that's one of the big problems with organoids to getting them to the right size every time to use. So yeah. I'll have to, uh, maybe I'll take a trip to Yale and, uh, and, uh, check out the lab and see. She really, she really. Did it, huh, Yost? Because I was looking at her CV. She was a clinical psychiatrist, right? Yeah. And then she just transitioned to the lab and then blew
1: up. So good yeah. for her. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And uh, All right. that was nice that she gave a different where's the beef uh, answer. I'd never heard that one. Uh, sort of diagnostics. Diagnostics. Using, I like yeah, that. Look, that coming was,
0: off of our Theranostics episode, diagnostics yeah, was yeah. The, this one. So that was All right. Cool. So y- Yos and I are going r- to go to the rant segment of the show where we just rant and probably <laughs> about not really important stuff. But we're, this is the part of the show where we get to let it off our chest. So send your rants in to uh, gmail.com. Yos, what do you got for me, man?
1: Well, since Flora had mentioned uh, Matrigel and her funny story, I just figured we'd rant about matri gel caps and that that little so matrigel is this like tumor explosion that uh, uh, releases what would you it's just like exploded tumor you know, yeah
0: a, tumors grow that's what they do and to to help them grow they just secrete out this ooze it's like a slime it's like a it's like a basement <laughs> membrane that they love and it's really rich so researchers Extract it, and we put it on our plates, and we throw cells on there because they love it. But yeah. it comes in this weird, comes in like a bottle, right? Yos, with one of
1: those, uh, one of those, what is it? Like a metal? It's it's a metal cap that you have to. I mean, certain drugs and uh, c- chemical compounds come in this bottle where you have a rubber stopper on top yep. of the glass bottle, and then on top of the rubber stopper is this metal. Metal piece of wrapping that if you that don't is, do it yeah. right, you're you're gonna cut yourself on yeah. this thing.
0: It's really it, you have to actually get a pair of like tweezers or scissors, and you you have to kind of bend it up, right? You have to bend it, and when yes. you bend it, you expose a, a sharp metal. Then you have to reach and rip it around, and if you're not paying attention, to it, you can slice your finger open. It's pretty nasty, actually. Yeah. So um,
1: this ransom matrix gel caps and all these other like N2. We were talking about how N2 or B27 supplement has this like wrapping around it that's yeah, it's just like, a plastic wrap. You just almost, rip off the plastic. Yeah, but even that plastic wrapping is a little hard to get off. It just it doesn't is because pull it's like, off. Yeah,
0: yeah. It doesn't just pull off. But it's also we were talking about it's like those it's like any sort of can. Like you know those soups where you have like the little ring and you pop the ring up and then you have to pull back on the yeah. ring? Yeah, yeah. If you mess that up, man, you can really slice your hand open. We have we not come up with a better way to <laughs> to seal devices without causing someone to kind of like lose a finger. Like, there's enough stuff in the lab we got to worry about between chemicals and toxins and bacteria and all this stuff. We got to worry about opening up a jar matrix gel and slicing our hand open and contributing to the tumor ooze that's inside the the bottle there.
1: Yeah, I mean, like this is like spam. Think about spam uh, cans, like in World War One or World War Two, people the technology hasn't changed much i mean you just have this like can that you open up and it, it the technology hasn't changed in over 100 years like uh, can we do some sort of new packaging so that we don't have to slice ourselves by accident uh i don't know maybe there's it, this is just the way it is and it's never going to get any better than like uh, dude i don't know this- yeah
0: but I, I guess they're, I think, it's, is it's Corning that, is it Corning that has uh, Matri-Gel? I think it's Corning. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, I you don't could, do the ordering, so i You could yeah.
0: buy it in multiple places, I believe yeah. they license it now, but whoever's making that, can we get, like, a little plastic wrapper or something like that? One of those hot seals, you know, where you, like, put it on and you, you put it under heat and, like, melts the plastic around? Like, i much rather that. I don't want to have to worry about any of my students or myself coming in with, like, half their finger dangling off, because, <laughs> you know, they'll blame it on me, because, you know, Chris wanted me to thaw out some more Matri-Gel, and I was just doing it, and I sliced my whole finger open
1: yeah yeah so that's our rant
0: (laughs) did you ever have real quick before we close did you ever have like a catastrophic lab accident that you want to talk about that you're willing to talk about like where you like you know uh uh, one of those glass pipettes through your hand i remember yeah Yakel, Yakel, his drift, his, yes. That's, remember that?
1: That's exactly what I was thinking of. That Yakel, was the worst El, I've ever seen. Elkabets in the lab, he had uh, just kind of sliced his finger open. Uh, t- I think it was when the aspirator, the the glass pipette uh, that we used Yakel to aspirate. Yeah, goes into me. the tube. Yeah, he, he had uh, taken it out and accidentally cut himself really bad in that Deep. whole process. Yeah, he had to get yeah.
0: really bad. He was bleeding everywhere. I remember like him and I go in, there was blood everywhere, and it was dangerous. See? So you got to watch out in the lab. The yeah. lab can be dangerous. Keep those first aid kits around yeah, keep them matri jaw you know, yeah, right caps intact, man. so yeah. yos, my man, uh, the next time we talk to you, you will be at your new position uh, good luck with everything, man, and uh we can now we'll introduce to you as the Yosef as uh, New York stems Foundation. so congratulations, my friend. All right, thank and you. We'll see everybody on episode fifty three peace out, bro, take
1: care.